This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Christianity Today's Russell Moore Show. Every week here, we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And this is one of those shows where I take some of your questions. Now, it's really easy to do. Uh, just send your question to me at questions at russellmoore.com uh, about really whatever is on your mind and, and whatever it is that you're struggling with. For some people, that's an issue about how they're to live their lives out at work as Christians. For some people, it's about how to uh, just deal with the uh, hard hardnesses of, of life. Um, for some people, it's an ethical dilemma. They're trying to figure out, uh, am I doing the right thing in my marriage or in my church decision or um, in some political sort of question, and then questions about how to relate uh, Christianity to the rest of life and the world. I mean, that, those are very broad categories, and I'm not going to use your name unless you ask me to. So you, you can you can be completely anonymous and confidential, and I'm not going to I'm not going to call you out on whatever it is that you ask. And this also is not, um, I, I, I would hope, I think that this is not a, um, it's not a contentious sort of uh, argumentative kind of a show. So I'm going to I'm going to take at face value the sorts of questions that you send, and that's those are the sorts of things that come in. They're they're honest, genuine, genuine questions. Of people saying, "I I just don't know how to think this through," or "I think I do, but maybe I'm I'm wrong." Can you help me think it through together? And so there's not going to be any. Uh, I, I'm not going to gasp and say I can't believe that someone asked me this question uh, when it comes to questions at russellmore.com. So just send those in. I am really glad to be back after a time of uh, finishing this book. Uh, I went away and worked on um, ending this book manuscript. It was the hardest book that I've ever written because it it was the most personal. I'm, I'm really grappling with some very, very personal kinds of experiences and uh, almost having to relive some of them as I as I think through, okay, where have we come as American Christians and, and where ought we to go? Well, that's a question broadly about, about uh, Christianity and about the church and whatever, but it's also a question uh, for, for each of us very personally. And so that was, um, it was a really difficult 
but in a good way, difficult book to complete. And we followed that by uh, going on vacation, which was just going back to our hometown, uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, and spending time with my mom and my brother and his wife. And um, it was great. I mean, we, Fourth of July, fireworks and uh, the whole deal in my favorite place on earth. It was it was great. So we have your questions uh, to take up. And the first one uh, that I want to deal with is a question that has come in that's really kind of representative of, of many uh, similar questions that have come along these lines. Uh, since the Dobbs uh, v. Mississippi uh, case in the Supreme Court, which um, over overturned uh, the Roe versus Wade decision from 1973 that uh, essentially uh, legalized uh, abortion altogether uh, in the United States. Dobbs overrules that, sends it back to uh, the states. Uh, so each state has to uh, think through and debate uh, their laws on abortion. You're all familiar with uh, with those developments. Now, the, the reason that this question is important is because for those of us who are um, opposed to Roe versus Wade, wanted uh, for years Roe to go, uh, for those of us who are pro-life and who want to see unborn children and their mothers uh, protected, sometimes the pushback that we will get is from someone saying, well, that's what you believe, but you're trying to impose your beliefs on everybody else. And so several of you were writing and you were saying, um, I'm, I'm pro-life, but when I'm talking to my friends who are not, I don't know what to say when they say, well, you believe that because of your religion. And so because that is your religion, you shouldn't impose that on everybody else. Now, here, here's why I think that that line of argument is not, is not right. I'm not saying it's not necessarily in good faith in all cases, but it's not accurate. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, one of, those, uh, one of the tactics that people can use uh, when it comes to responding to this is to say, well, I'm pro-life, uh, and it doesn't. It's not a religious opinion. Uh, th this is simply on the basis of science. That's why I'm pro-life. And you have some people who do this and will uh, spend um, most of their time talking about natural law. Uh, you know, a lot of the people. I mean, natural law can mean a lot of things, but some of the people who devote a lot of time talking to natural law and don't talk about the Bible um, are usually motivated by religious reasons as to why they care about certain uh, issues, but they're kind of embarrassed about that and and want to uh, argue on on other grounds. Um, I don't think that's the way to go. Uh, I, I also don't think it's the way to go to say, well, yes, we're imposing our religion on you. Every law is an imposition of some religion on someone else. That's not true either. I mean, uh, obviously, if we believe that the worship of God uh, comes about through the transforming power of the spirit and through the renewed heart, through the, the new birth, then imposing religion, uh, meaning I imposing the worship of God uh, or, or gods uh, of any sort, 
that would be not just wrong, it would be, uh, it, it would make a parody out of religion. You can't create, um, you can't regenerate someone with a law. You can't uh, have someone actually worship. You can have someone stand together and say certain words. You can have someone put down a religious identity on a driver's license, but you can't you can't make someone into a worshiper of God through Christ uh, by the Spirit through the law. So the the underlying question, is it wrong to impose your religion on someone else? Y- yeah, that's true in the sense that we don't have, um, we don't have as Christians who believe John 3 and the rest of the New Testament, we don't think that a religion is determined on the basis of, okay, who are the majority of people in an area? Uh, so if you're in Utah, you're Mormon. If you're in South Louisiana, you're Catholic. If you're in North Mississippi, you're Baptist. If you're in Minnesota, you're Lutheran. I mean, that's that's not uh, what uh, what Christianity, evangelical Christianity, certainly argues for. But that's not what's happening when it comes to the issue of um, of abortion. So what I would encourage you to do is to if you're if you're sitting down and you're talking to a friend who disagrees who just doesn't understand that's a different thing than just sort of being in an argument with somebody online or um, an argument with somebody on the bus or something like that but if you're having an argument with somebody who just doesn't get this issue and a lot of times and I had this uh, argument just um, a couple of weeks ago with uh, with a group of um, journalists, a lot of them really, really secular, and a lot of them aren't around very religious people very often, who said, well, you know, why can't you just let it be um, uh, on this? And I said, well, here, here's what I, here's what you should, uh, in order to debate those of us who are pro-life, you have to really understand our viewpoint. And in our viewpoint, we're not dealing with one person only. We're dealing with two people. And so, I mean, the, the, the argument is often, you know, why do you care what uh, sort of decision that someone makes? Well, it's because in a pro-life perspective on the world, we're dealing with two vulnerable people and you have to care about both of them. And both of them have a, a right to, to life and, and a right to care. And so that's, uh, that's what I think sometimes, sometimes you have pro-life people who are thinking in terms of two unique uh, lives, while pro-choice people are sometimes thinking about a procedure. It's the abortion without really thinking through um, what does the procedure do and, and who does the procedure affect. So I think that if you're, if you're having this conversation, I think the first thing to do would be to say, make sure you understand, you don't have to agree with, but make sure you understand kind of where these kinds of convictions are coming. And then to talk about, I mean, this this isn't uh, the imposition. I mean, Dobbs, for one thing, isn't imposing anything. Um, uh, Dobbs is removing an imposition um, and, and saying there's not a constitutional right to abortion. And so this now goes to the democratic process uh, via the states. 
But even uh, even in the work in um, in the pro-life movement when it comes to protecting unborn children and caring for their mothers, what you're having here is not the imposition of uh, something akin to, say, blue laws, where Christians might say, well, we worship on Sundays, so we think that everyone ought to take Sunday as a day of rest, and, and so everything by law is to be shut down. And I think sometimes that's the way that people who are making that argument, you're imposing your religion on me, are thinking about it. It, But it's not that way. So it's not that uh, those of us who are pro-life are saying, well, we have this religious conviction. Look to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says this, and therefore that's uh, binding upon you. We're saying to live in a society, we have to have the protection of vulnerable people. We all agree on that. You, you can't have some people whose uh, lives are expendable uh, for whatever reason. Okay, we believe that that applies to uh, a baby and, and that baby's status isn't defined by how old or how powerful that baby is. So the, the question of how far along is the baby, what is the... Uh, viability language that is used. I think that the viability language really does reveal a lot about the way that we think that somehow a state of dependence makes someone less than a person. When in reality, what we all know is that the human life starts and ends with a state of great dependence and is punctuated by states of great dependence. We are dependent upon one another all the time. We are dependent upon our natural environment. We're, we're, we are dependent creatures. And so a, a baby's lack of power when it comes to having some ability to live on his or her own is a really, really dangerous um, uh, sort of uh, sort of mentality to have. Now, I don't think that only pro-choice people have adopted that mentality by by any means. I think it shows up in all sorts of uh, places and all sorts of ways, and we have to be on guard uh, for it all the time because one of the things that the Bible's constantly warning about is this ability to make people invisible, to not see or to think about uh, the, the people who are uncomfortable to think about. And, and uncomfortable maybe because they make a demand upon you. Um, homeless people uh, in your neighborhood, a rich man in Lazarus, uh, for instance, in Scripture, or because seeing them and caring about them would put you out of step with your tribe. They're uncomfortable, so you just don't think about them and you make them invisible. That's a really dangerous place to be in terms of our humanity. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. 
Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. When it comes to why Christians are uh, caring about uh, unborn children, those of us who do, it's not that we are saying, here is something in our religion that you cannot see and you do not accept, and we are going to impose it on you because we have the power to do that. Now, there are people who want to do that with various things, but that's, uh, that's not, um, I don't think that's a genuinely uh, biblical Christian uh, mentality. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is a restricting of people's power to do violence to other members of the human family. And, you know, you will notice uh, most of your pro-choice uh, neighbors when they are pregnant or they have a family member who's pregnant and the baby is wanted, they're going to speak of that baby as a baby. Uh, look at this this sonogram picture. This is uh, our uh, son who's due in, in October. Or this is our daughter who's due uh, in April. So there is an intuitive sort of recognition. This is human. <laughs> I mean, there's no argument there that this is human as opposed to something else. There, there's no argument here that this is alive as opposed to dead. Uh, the question is, well, is this a person? And that question comes down to, well, is this a human being uh, about whom we ought to care? So that question is essentially, who is my neighbor? And I think as Christians, what we have to say is, we are motivated to care about our invisible to us neighbors uh, precisely because we believe them to be made in, in the image of God. That's the same sort of thing. I mean, there, you've, you'll find people kind of depending on where their tribal uh, silos are, um, recognizing what's happening or not recognizing it based on those tribal silos. So when I say I care about uh, migrant children at the border or um, I care about Syrian refugees because... Uh, the Bible teaches me to care for and to look out for uh, the stranger among us. I'm not saying, well, the United States government is um, is under the 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 code of Deuteronomy. I'm saying the Bible tells me who I ought to care about and who I ought to pay attention to. Therefore, I can't pretend like those people aren't there just because they're inconvenient to the state or to my political movement or whatever it is. So this isn't a an imposition. It is explaining what the motivation is as a Christian. And not all pro-life people are motivated by a sense of the image of God. You go to, I'm at the March for Life every year and you'll have uh, atheists for life. You'll have, um, I, mean, I think one year there was pagans for life. I mean, there are Buddhists for life. I mean, there, there's all sorts of different people who are there not motivated by religion at all. But for evangelical Christians, I think that what we ought to say is you don't have to be a Christian to see that violence toward uh, innocent human life is wrong. But as a Christian, I'm especially motivated to care about that and to say, where is that happening? In the same way that there are 
some of the people, for instance, I know who are working the best and the hardest in the area of, um, say, uh, addicts and and helping people to recover from alcoholism or drug abuse or some some other form of substance abuse. They care about it, particularly because they have recovered from uh, those sorts of uh, issues or someone they love has. They've seen the damage that substance abuse can do, and they want to help people to get out of it. And they're not, they're not imposing their experience on everyone else. They're saying, I care about this because I have seen what it has done. And I think that argument is going to have to be uh, increasingly made because with Roe gone, uh, Roe versus Wade is necessary to be gone, uh, in order to make uh, progress on the pro-life front, but it's not sufficient for that. So uh, just because Roe versus Wade is gone does not mean that you have a pro-life culture. If you have Roe versus Wade gone and 75, 80% of the people um, don't recognize the, the worth and dignity of the unborn uh, child, then you're not going to end up with a pro-life society. So it's it's not as though, well, the persuasion now has ended and now we just move to implementation. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a terrible way to think about it. The, the persuasion here, both in terms of, this is why we ought to care about uh, the baby. This is why we ought to care about the mother. This is why we ought to uh, care about, uh, we ought to care about not only what does violence to them, but also what are the reasons that people seek out violence thinking that that's a solution? I mean, both of those things are uh, necessary if, you're, if we're going to actually create a pro-life uh, culture. What's happening here? And one of the reasons I think that's so important right now is because... Um, a lot of times I think, you know, we, we spent the first part of this talking about um, the unborn child as person. I think that's that's necessary for us to, you know, we're having these debates to say, wait, 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 wait. We're not just talking about a procedure. We are talking about unique to, at least two, very unique human lives, vulnerable human lives. And so let's care about both of them. Again, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient because one of the things that you're going to see, and particularly um, if you do much ministry on the local level, one of the things that you're going to see is that there are, um, there are a lot of people who have the right viewpoints, quote unquote, uh, on abortion who are having abortions. And I've mentioned this before, I think even on this uh, podcast, but uh, I remember several years ago um, seeing uh, uh, something from, from someone who had worked in or who had run an abortion clinic who said, you know, I think the assumption is that most of uh, the clients here are pro-choice. So in other words, that people come to the conclusion, well, a fetus is just a collection of tissue, therefore expendable, and then go to the abortion clinic. And she said, that's actually not the case. She said, most of the young women uh, in my clinic waiting room are evangelical, Christ- evangelical Protestants or Roman Catholics. And the Roman Catholic 
uh, young women or their husbands or boyfriends are saying, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know that I'm taking a life, but I'm just going to have to go to confession. I'm, I might have to just live through purgatory. Um, I have to do this. The evangelical Protestant uh, people are saying, I know this is wrong. I know this is taking of human life, but I'm just going to have to trust uh, God's mercy to forgive me because I don't know any other way around this. Now that, that is not just a social crisis and it's not even just a human life crisis. It's also a theological crisis that is addressed uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Bible. The sense of, well, I, I have to do evil in order to prevent more evil from happening. And therefore, uh, I'm just going to have to ask forgiveness, not permission. I mean, that, that's something that is taken head on in the book of Romans particularly. God forbid, uh, Paul says. But it is a message that resonates Precisely because, as, as one feminist leader said in the 1970s, most people are pro-life with three exceptions, rape, incest, and my situation. And so I think that there are a lot of people who are pro-life and who vote pro-life and who talk pro-life and maybe even give money to pro-life causes who, when a daughter uh, becomes pregnant, slips away. Uh, in, in the night to abortion. So that that requires not only um, an educating of people as to why we ought to care about unborn human life, but also to come in and say, here are ways that no matter where your ideas are, you're going to be vulnerable to this um, this sense of use your power uh, against that which is powerless so that you do not become more powerless. I mean, that's a dangerous, dangerous line of rhetoric. And I think we need to, we need to identify it in our own hearts and minds. We need to uh, make those who are invisible to us visible to us. These are our neighbors. And we need to be coming in and saying, why are people uh, even entertaining this horrible, horrible option? And how can we come in to carry those burdens, to, to bear those uh, burdens? I'm going to be talking this in the newsletter this week. There are a lot of ideas that are coming from people as to how we can do that and do that better. And a lot of places already are. Uh, working in some really uh, powerful ways. Okay, that was a that was a long one, but I think it was important right now just because so many people are grappling with that. There was a related question uh, that came from a couple of um, young women, in one case, a young man, who have experienced abortion. Uh, the, the the women uh, physically had abortions. The young man uh, paid for and and empowered an abortion. And they're saying that all of the conversation about abortion coming through with Dobbs and overturning of Roe has sort of brought this back to the forefront of their minds. And one of them particularly said, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm, I'm glad we need to be talking about this. She said, but 
what do I do when I feel so uh, helplessly guilty? And she said, and I know theologically what the gospel says about forgiveness of sins, but I just can't get rid of that feeling of guilt. Okay, well, what I would say to you is this is, if you look at the way that the Bible uh, speaks of sin, um, the Bible speaks of sin in a way that is really comprehensive to human to human life. So the, the Bible speaks of at least two aspects of uh, the way that the devil works. Uh, what the devil wants to do, Genesis 3, is to say, you can make the decisions as to what is good and what is evil, and there will be no consequences for those decisions other than those that you create. That's that's the, the first step. So it's a deception. Don't, don't, I mean, and you can see that in anything. Um, in, any sort of uh, sin that you have, you, you talk yourself into saying, well, this isn't really wrong, or well, it's wrong, but not really wrong in my case, or it's wrong, but not as wrong as the other option. And uh, there, there aren't going to be uh, any consequences for that. Uh, has God really said, you shall not really die? I mean, those are the, that's the language of being used in Genesis 3, and it replays itself out in, in all of our lives. So there's the deception, but then the second stage of that is the accusation. So uh, when the, the Bible speaks of the devil, Revelation 12, he's the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. He's the accuser. And there is this accusation that comes um, that, that leads to, for instance, uh, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, when they sin against God, they hide. They hide in shame because they, they, they don't want to face God. So the devil is working, you think about in this case, in both ways to say that this is not going to be uh, a problem. Nobody's going to know about this. You're not going to have any consequences for this. Uh, do it. And then immediately afterward, or sometimes not immediately, sometimes a little bit later, comes in with that word of accusation. This is, I, I know who you are and I know what you do. And, and your own conscience say, I know, I know who I am and I know what I've done. And so sometimes it doesn't matter how good your Bible reading is. It doesn't matter how familiar you are with the gospel or how theologically, uh, intellectually there you are. <clears throat> you can start, just as, as this uh, young woman said, you can start having this sense of, I know something, but I don't feel it. And it, it's, it's continually sort of hitting me. What I would say to you, and, and in all, all these cases, these are people who have repented of uh, sin and they're, they're deeply grieved by what they did uh, in the past. What I would say is, I mean, the Bible tells us if we confess, confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And often it doesn't feel that way. That doesn't mean that it isn't true. 
We, we, we walk by faith and not by sight, including about the way that God has uh, God has incorporated us into Christ. Our, our sins are carried away by him on the cross. Our lives are being lived uh, through him right now. We're, we're part of his body. That's very difficult for us to see. And so it's difficult for us to really hear those words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, I, I, I've never uh, been involved in uh, an abortion, but I, I just think about things in my own life, even just really trivial, uh, relatively speaking, things in any given week. I'll have to remind myself repentance is received by God and then I'll want to go back and, but yeah, but but is this really repentance? Because I don't feel repentant. And what I mean by feeling repentant is I'm not just um, thinking constantly about what I did and, and how wrong it is, the conversation I had with somebody or the, whatever it is. I don't think, I don't think the problem is so much that you grapple with that as long as you know you are grappling with that. So I think if you will consciously be aware when the voices in your head or in your conscience start to say, okay, well, God forgives sinners, but not sinners like you, uh, then you have to note to yourself, okay, wait a minute. There's something in me that is saying that there's something outside the scope of uh, the saving blood of Christ or that there's, that there's something that I need to do to earn forgiveness of sin by the, the way that I feel. I mean, just note that that's happening and ask yourself, is that Jesus? No. I mean, if you, if you look at the way that Jesus deals with repentant sinners uh, in, in Scripture, he's not shocked. He's not uh, stepping back and saying, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. He's receiving you. He knows all about that. Uh, he, he at no point says to you, well, the things that you have done aren't really that bad and that's why I love you. I mean, that, that's sometimes I think what we, we think is that God can forgive sins because he doesn't think that they're all that bad. That's not what the cross teaches us. It teaches just the opposite. God knows more than you do how bad your sinful actions are, how bad your sinful inclinations are. And knowing that, says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the temptation is going to be to try to want to pull back in shame from the presence of God when that comes forward, rather than to, as John puts it, walk in the light by bringing it out into the light. And so just note that when that uh, starts to happen. And, and note, I think, too, we all have to sort of know where we are temperamentally. I think there are, I think we're all vulnerable to both kind of presumption and despair. But sometimes people are more prone to one or the other. And so ask yourself, 
uh, am I the sort of person who's who's more prone to just say, oh, yeah, I'll do what I want and God will forgive me? And if so, I've got to really watch that. Or am I the sort of person who tends to despair and to say, well, I'm a sinner, so God doesn't love me. I've got to really be aware of that. And so just know kind of where you are and know that the devil doesn't work in one way. He works in multiple ways. But God's grace doesn't just meet us in one way either. God's grace meets us in all of those places, leading us back to Christ. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Okay, there was a question that came in from someone who asked about working with uh, he says that he is working with someone that when he does the internet searching about this person's behavior, it is malignant narcissism. And so he wants to know what to do. Okay, well, I mean, I'm not a, a clinical a psychologist or psychiatrist, so I can't uh, diagnose anybody. And I, I, even if I were, I couldn't diagnose someone just on the basis of what uh what uh, I hear about them, uh, secondhand or thirdhand. Malignant narcissism isn't actually a clinical term either, but I think it's a helpful term because I think people misunderstand narcissism uh, sometimes and they think the narcissist is just the person who's uh, bragging and, and boasting about um, his or her accomplishments all, all the time. Uh, it, it, it's much, much deeper than that. And, and when we're talking about malignant narcissism, we're talking about a depth of a kind of disordered personality um, that is is almost it's almost easier to recognize intuitively when one experiences it than it is to kind of have a checklist, like a Enneagram test or something like that uh, for this. Here's what I would say. There are all kinds of good books about this. There are, there are all kinds of good resources ab about this. What I would say for you working in this situation with this person that you believe to be a malignant narcissist is a kind of a word of warning. And, and here's what the warning is. Here's what I've learned <laughs> is that 
there is a kind of really deep-seated narcissism um, that sees humiliation really, really, I mean, none of us like humiliation, but sees humiliation as a kind of blasphemy. They, they, they react to it the way that a God would react to being blasphemed. And that's, so often there is an anger um, that is present there, a kind of um, sometimes a sort of undercurrent of anger going all the time and often a lack of self-control and, and overcoming of those borders and boundaries when it comes to uh, anger. Often what you're also going to see is the kind of envy that sees uh, everyone else as a potential competitor. Um, so and I, I said of one person I knew, uh, this person has two categories of people in the world. You're either idiots or competitors. So if you're an idiot, this person looks down on you uh, for your idiocy. Uh, if you're not an idiot, this person is worried about you as a competitor and, and wants to, to try to find a way to tear you down. I mean, that there are a lot of people in, uh, I don't know if this is a church position that you're dealing with, but it shows up in church positions. It shows up in, um, in, in almost every other area. And what we almost always think we can do is to sort of navigate that. And the way that we do it is to say, well, I can keep bad things from happening. And the way that I do that is I can just uh, come up with ideas and convince this person that it's his or her idea, uh, you, you know, and, 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 then, and then good things can happen in our church ministry or in our homeless shelter or in our tech company or uh, whatever. I can try to find ways to conceal uh, this person's anger and sort of isolate people from that person's anger. It just doesn't work. And it, it, it doesn't work because in most cases, most of us aren't really equipped to address the really deep-seated uh, issues behind this. And so what we start doing is kind of triaging character matters. Um, and we really do start seeing things in terms of, well, what's the end result? Uh, if the end result is that this uh, evangelism ministry goes well, or the end result is that the shareholders are happy, um, then this person's character we just sort of find a way to normalize that uh, in ways that are often, they often put people in a situation where they're genuinely abused by people like this. Or you start to become complicit because you get used to this kind of behavior to the point that you don't even notice it anymore. So that would be my warning for you. And, and I would say, um, obviously, you don't know what the case is in, in, I mean, I don't know what the case is in your particular situation. Um, there are, I mean, I know there are some people who would define as narcissism decisiveness. 
Okay, that's not, doesn't sound like that's what you're dealing with though. Sounds like you know what you're talking about here. I would seek out some people who really know and have some experience in this to help you to see, is there really a way for you to carry out your particular area of gifting in a situation like that without getting hurt or empowering the hurting of other people? Those would be the questions that I would want to ask um, if I were you. Someone asks a question about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism and um, wants to know how big a deal these things ought to be. So if you're not familiar with these uh, terms, um, it really boils down to debates within the church about uh, whether or not God's election of people to salvation is unconditioned. God takes the initiative um, or whether by God's grace, people through their free will choose uh, to believe and God sees that uh, ahead of time. Well, I grew up in a church that never would have known those terms at all, but would have been a an Arminian church except when it comes to uh, whether or not someone can lose his or her salvation. But very revivalistic, very, um, uh, a lot of emphasis upon decision and upon uh, freedom. And there was a lot in that that was really beneficial to me. There, there was also, though, a lot that I saw, as I've talked about before, in Bible Belt cultural Christianity that I thought was rooted in a kind of transactional view of salvation. So use some emotional manipulation, use some, I mean, I've seen uh, churches where someone will come into vacation Bible school and say to kids, uh, do you love Jesus? Do you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Everybody raises their hand. You lead them in uh, the sinner's prayer and baptize them. I mean, if you find a four-year-old who's going to tell you, I hate Jesus and I want to go to hell, you found an unusual four-year-old, especially if you're in uh, the, the Bible Belt. So that doesn't necessarily uh, evidence uh, someone who has, who has come to faith or, or is following Christ. So you have this sort of cultural apparatus of Christianity. And as time went by, I think I... Uh, I think I maybe maybe over interpreted how much of that was related to that kind of uh, decisional revivalism, and I remember being in seminary, um, and I had a roommate who was a Calvinist, which at the time, I mean, this is before the Young Restless Reformed movement and and all of that. It was almost as though you had encountered someone who was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm someone who's really committed to witch burning. It was like, wait, wait, this seems like something that is a historical artifact. And I'm meeting somebody like this <laughs> right now. And it seemed really horrible uh, to me. But he and I would have these arguments uh, not not contentious arguments, but just back and forth debates over Ephesians 1 and over Romans 8 and over uh, 1 Corinthians 1, over all of these passages in Scripture. And he would say things uh, along the lines of, why are you a Christian? And he, he knew of someone in my life who was in a very, very similar situation almost every way. 
same church, same everything, and would say, are you smarter than he is? No. Uh, are you more sensitive than he is? Is that why you're a Christian? No. Well, then what made the difference? What do you have that you didn't receive? So I was persuaded by that. And uh, I would fit into the category, I suppose, that most people would say is a four-point Calvinist. But, (laughs) but with maybe a, a, an overarching fifth point that is mystery. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, Calvinism and Arminianism are both addressing um, abstractions about the mechanics, for lack of a better word, of how God works. Uh, in a way that the Bible doesn't give a lot of attention to that. I mean, when, when you come in and you see the, the sections where God, for instance, is talking about, um, where the scripture is talking about predestination or election, it is never in the context of, well, you might not really be uh, saved even though you've come to faith in Christ because you might not be one of the elect. Nor is it, um, this is an emphasis uh, of the identity of the church. Instead, it's explaining something, which, which is to say, for instance, hey, if you're in the church at Ephesus, you're a Gentile, you're not accidentally here. Uh, you, you didn't sort of find yourself here in someone else's story. God took the initiative in calling you here. That's what it is. I mean, it's the 99 and the nine of the sheep. Uh, the shepherd goes out and gets that one sheep, carries that sheep back. That's, that's, what, that's what the doctrine of election in scripture is intending to, to teach. And so you have an a strong emphasis on it's by God's grace that you receive anything that you receive. You also have a really strong emphasis on the call to decision, the, the, the call to, uh, to come to Christ and that Jesus will receive whoever comes to him. So I would not... Um, now, some of you are in denominations that are that are formed along these lines, and obviously, if you're in a Methodist church, you're going to be in a um, in a confessionally defined Arminian church. If you're in a Presbyterian church, you're usually going to be in a confessionally defined Calvinistic church. But I think generally, we need the emphases that are coming from both Calvinism and Arminianism. And I'm not saying, oh well. Calvinism is entirely true and Arminianism is entirely true or or false. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the central issue there is something that is pointing to something that is true. The, where my home church really got it right is to say, don't sit around and wait on some sort of feeling about whether or not God will receive you. God will receive you. Have faith in Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter how you feel, no matter what you're doing, come to Christ. That's exactly right, I think, biblically speaking. And the Calvinistic emphasis that comes in and says, you didn't get yourself here in terms of 
the influences that were around you in terms of the way that the Holy Spirit worked in your life. You didn't work all of that up. So you're not carrying the weight of that. That's God's grace that's doing that. You need both of those emphases. And I think sometimes what happens is if you just have the one, which is why you can see when Calvinism is a big emphasis uh, and, and the mechanics of election become emphasized beyond scripture, then often you end up with places that are growing more and more, if not hyper-Calvinistic, uh, they are at least uh, growing more and more reluctant to uh, speak in the sorts of terms that the Bible speaks about the freeness of the offer of salvation. There's a lot of worry about, well, let's make sure that we're not sort of accidentally uh, assuring uh, people that they're Christians when they're not. That can eventually become a situation where uh, you end up with the only people who think they're Christians being the most arrogant uh, people there rather than the reverse. Well, what, what happens is for Calvinists, having Arminians around in some way uh, helps them because they're having to say, no, 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 no. God's sovereignty does not mean that God is uh, a puppet master. Uh, Saying that God's sovereign over everything that that happens does not mean that there's not human freedom and human responsibility. You You have to talk that through. And Arminians, when there aren't any Calvinists around, sometimes historically have so de-emphasized the um, sovereignty of God that they end up drifting out into uh, Unitarianism or, or, or something like that. But when Arminians are in a situation where they're actually speaking to uh, Calvinists, part of the church, to say, no, we don't believe, Arminians don't believe that people have some sort of natural free will where I can go one way or go the other way. And let's say God's grace goes out in front of us. God, you are a Christian because of God's grace. Uh, so they emphasize that. They, they emphasize it, it's not a waste of time to pray for people who are, are lost and to say, God, do something there. We, we believe that God can act. And in a lot of these situations, like with so much, there are truths in scripture that are held in tension with one another with a great deal of mystery this side of eternity as to how exactly they uh, they fit together, but are both necessary. And so I think that if... Um, I'm not worried, but I don't really think that the divisions are usually actually between Calvinists and Arminians. I, and I used to think that. Um, I think instead there are, there are divisions that go right through those lines. And so you can end up with, um, uh, and I mean, I can think of a comprehensively Arminian uh, friend of mine who would preach the gospel exactly as I would and would counsel somebody who's, who's worried about um, uh, 
their salvation exactly as I would. And I can think of some people who might on a page and on a confession of faith line up maybe more closely with me, but who would approach those things completely differently. Um, so I, I think that we can, we can not only coexist, but we each are bringing something to the table that I think is necessary for the whole church. That's my view. So uh, last question we have time for today. I went so long, I didn't have time for some, I'll come back and do another uh, episode. But someone writes in a school teacher and uh, she says she's a public school teacher and she uses up uh, her energy through the week and she's an introvert. And so she says, would it be okay for me to skip church and just watch online? Okay, well, I'm an introvert too. And, and what people mean by introvert is um, exactly the way she puts it here. Do you have to, how do you charge up? Uh, an extrovert can do things by himself or herself, but they have to charge up by being with people. Um, an introvert charges up alone and then expends that uh, on other people. And that I think is really one of the assumptions here which is that what church ought to be is a, a charging up when in reality a great deal of what the gathered body of church is to be is part of the spending. So it's admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, be on mission with one another. A great deal of it is the expending that is happening there. And so I don't think you can do that by listening to a sermon online. Uh, I also think that the assumption there is that primarily what church is about is receiving information. So if you if you have the sermon, um, you know, there, there's... If, if a sermon functions the way that some people tend to think that they function, then you could just email them. You know, I hate meetings. There are so many meetings where I just say, you could have just emailed me this. You know, we could have had a PDF document. If, if all I need to know is what does this text mean, then yeah, I would, I would rather uh, read that on my own uh, or, or hear that on my own. But that's not what the gathering of the body is. Hearing the word of God is an address from God. Hearing uh, one another singing is, uh, is a way of God shaping and forming us through uh, worship. Having the, the reading of scripture, having the, uh, the, the taking of, of bread and wine, uh, participating in the baptisms uh, of others. I mean, all of those things they're shaping you, informing you, not just in the ways that you can see, mostly not in the ways that you can see. It's not how much of this sermon can I remember. It's that week in, week out, being gathered together. And, and part of what's so mysterious about this is that Ephesians 3 talks about the church as being a sign to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Part of what's happening spiritually 
in the gathering of the church is the gathering itself. It, it, it is a sign of God saying, I am gathering together these people in this place who might not have anything in common except for the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And I will one day gather the flock all together, one flock, one shepherd, as Ezekiel says and as, as John says. So that is in and of itself a sign. Now, there are there are, you may be in a church that's just sort of really extrovert heavy. I mean, there are things I hate. Turn around and shake hands and uh, talk to the neighbor with you. I mean, that just seems so fake and artificial. We don't do that in my church, but I've been in lots of churches where they have. Um, I hate, and I do them when I need to, but I hate these sort of uh, community groups where what you're supposed to do is to all come in and sort of gather around uh, together and kind of talk about your lives. I can do that, but you have to almost kind of trick me into it, um, which is why I think, if we could talk about this some other time, I think that uh, in many cases, adult Sunday school served that function where you can have people who are... Uh, accountable to one another and sharing their lives with one another, but they're doing it by not looking at each other, but looking together at the text of scripture. Or I've seen this also work in terms of a, a lot of the churches um, that really are doing good ministry in forming people. A lot of times it's because you have a, a group of guys who are doing disaster relief together. You know, now they're doing everything that you'd be doing in sort of a small group, sit down and let's share our lives. They're doing it while they're building houses <laughs> or they're doing it while they're raking a, a yard. And for some people, um, that's uh, really more effective. So what I would say is look at the ways within your church that you can best expend energy in the way that you can best conserve energy but don't give up on the church. Don't do that. What's your question? Send it to me at questions at russellmore.com and I will do my best to answer it. And I promise I will not answer as long as I did the first couple of questions, which didn't give us uh, time to go through the rest of the things that we wanted to talk about today. I have questions here about night in heaven. I have questions about Thor. Uh, those sorts of things. I have questions about grandparents, what's going to happen when they retire. We can check those things out later on. Check out Christianity Today. Uh, you can get a free trial, six months um, uh, membership to CT. Go to the website and, and fill that out or click on the cover art here and you can find out how to do it. This is Russell Moore and you're listening to Christianity Today's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Core Media, Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes.
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.